Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another video from the Honest Youth Pastor. I'm Michael, the Honest Youth Pastor, and you are on the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. Today, we are going to do that. And one of the most consistent ways, one of the ways I love to do it the best, is through sermon reviews. We all see at least one sermon, hopefully a week, probably more, depending on if you watch them on YouTube or other places or hear them on podcasts. And it's really important to be able to discern if these are based in the scripture or if they're just opinion or if they're even being done well, if we're getting the right information from scripture. And that can be really difficult to tell. So one of the things we do on this channel is sermon reviews, where we walk through a variety of different sermons from a variety of different pastors, some of them submitted by you, some of the ones that I pick up along the way that I think would be really interesting to look at. Today, we're actually going to be looking at a pastor that a number of you have suggested. Never heard of this guy before, but his name is Robbie, Robbie Galatay, G-A-L-L-A-T-Y. I don't have a clue. I don't know how to say names, but if you want to know his full name spelled correctly, it's going to be in the thumbnail. The full sermon without my commentary will also be linked in the description below if you want to watch it without my talking. But as we walk through Robbie's sermon, we're going to ask three specific things, the same things we ask for every sermon we look at. It is one, does he read the text? Two, does he bring out the, uh, does he exegete the text using culture and context to bring out the application for the modern believer? And three, does he preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, if you've been uh, a constant viewer of these reviews, you know that's a pretty low bar, pretty generous bar, but at least those three things, I think, should be present in every single sermon. And one of the ways that I look for those in my sermons and the sermons uh, from the pastor of the church I go to, or even these sermons that we watch, is through the sermon review guide. And you can get one a copy of that for free, the PDF version for yourself, down below as well. You can print that off. You can use it on your tablet and just mark it up on there as a PDF, however you want to do it. But the point is it's free. Do with it what you want. Hopefully it helps you. That's why it's available to you. So that being said, I don't want to like belabor the point here. Today we're looking at Robbie. We're not even going to try to say his last name. And a sermon called Answering the Call. So the sermon itself is 45 minutes long. As you know, if you've been a, again, constant viewer of these uh, sermon reviews, this is probably going to be a longer review because it's already an hour by itself. And we're going to go through the whole thing. So buckle up. Um, I have watched about 90% of this through. I'm a busy guy, so I haven't actually got all the way through this one, but I got almost all the way through it. Um, so I know a majority of what he's going to say here. So let's go ahead and hop into it, start it, um, get right in, um, and let's plow through. 45 minutes here of, uh, he's in the Gospel of Matthew. He'll tell us that though. So here we go. Good morning. Uh, anybody excited to be here today? Amen. Awesome. Uh, we're glad you're here with us at Long Hollow. One quick announcement. Next Saturday, I think we have 200 spots left. Is that right, Todd Russell? About 200 spots left, and there'll be 1,000 people at the conference. So you need, need to sign up. I say that to say you need to sign up now because the marriage conference next week, and many of you have already signed up, and I know that's because of your wives, so ladies, thank you for that, right? Uh, but it's, it's not gonna be that typical marriage conference where the ladies are elevated and the men are beat down to the ground. Not that conference, can I get an amen? Yeah, we've been to those before. Uh, no, this would be a great time. Uh, the, the pastor, um, Ron, and his wife, Jody have written a book, um, and it's really good on marriage, and so you wanna be a part of that. That's next Saturday morning. It'll be a great time in the Lord. Um, wanna put it down on your calendar. Uh, I wanna talk about today, 
uh, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, what does it mean to answer the call to follow Jesus? What does it mean to answer the call to follow Jesus? Now, if you know anything about fishing in the first century, particularly by the Sea of Galilee, it is very different than fishing on Old Hickory, right? And there's a lot of differences. One is they actually caught fish. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, which is why they call it fishing and not catching. But in the first century, they actually fished at night. And it was one of the reasons was they wanted to catch the fish in the cool of the day as they would go at night. And the nets, they could see the fish. So they actually fished at night so the fish could not see. And what they would do is in the early morning hours, they would come in from fishing and all night and they would count the fish and they would sort the fish and they would mend the nets and they would go to the marketplace and sell those fish because everybody around the sea ate pretty much uh, a seafood diet in a sense. And so they sold the fish. They would rush back off to their house to catch a few minutes of, or moments of sleep in order to come back the next day and do it all over again. Fishing in the first century, you have to believe this, was very difficult. It was an arduous task uh, to be a part of. Now, if Jesus was an American pastor, I have to believe because of the fishing diet or the fish diet, he would have been a Cajun, right? I mean, he probably would, because that's what he loved. He loved fish. And if you're from South Louisiana, you love fish any kind of way. And I have to believe Jesus loved blackened fish. You with me? Anybody with me? Anybody like blackened fish, right? You have to believe he loved broiled fish. He loved, he loved grilled fish. Okay, so just to kind of start this off, he's starting off, and I think in a, in a fairly good way. So there's a lot of different ways you can start off a sermon, right? What he's basically doing is giving us some sort of context of the passage we're going to be going into. Now, I believe, if I remember right, I think it's like Matthew chapter 4 or 5. It's somewhere around there. He'll tell us here in a moment. But the point is, he is giving us some background to the text that we're going to be in, which is going to be helpful for setting up the context of what we're going to be reading. Um Actually, I think it's going to be, well, no, he'll tell us. I don't know where it's at. It's clearly not four or five. But the point is he's going to call the disciples. And so what Robbie's doing is giving us a background to the text of what's going to happen, kind of the life of the fisherman, what it would be like, not obviously fishing now, but what it would have been like fishing then. And so that we have some sort of the headspace of what's going on. Um, which isn't bad. That's good, right? We've talked about a, different, a variety of different ways to open sermons. One of the better ways, I think, is to go right to the text. But if you're not going to do that, I think what he's doing here is is equally as good because now by the time we get to the text and he tells us to turn to Matthew chapter whatever and we read through it, then we have at least a little bit of background of as we read it, what is already happening, which I think is the most helpful way to do it if you're going to start this way because at least now you're bringing us into the text in a helpful way and sort of leading us into understanding probably a topic to be honest with you most people don't get or have heard very little about and so now we know and so now when we read it we have enough knowledge to be able to process what's happening in a very rudimentary elementary way but we get it so um and by the way just talking about the sea of galilee it reminds me that we are going to go to Israel, for those who don't know, next March, and the trip is... Forgot to warn you about this. We're just going to watch it because it's part of it. <laughs> but he's basically doing some promo for some trips they're taking. Almost booked. There, there are nine spots left, by the way. And we're going to go through the Old and New Testament. We'll go to the Sea of Galilee. It'll come alive. This will come alive, what we're preaching today. So if you're interested in March spring break, sign up. I mentioned to you that in the fall, we were going to Italy. And many of you reached out to the office and asked, well, that trip got put off a year, unfortunately. 
There's a national Catholic holiday next year for the entire year in Italy. Who knew? And the tour director said, there is no way you're going to go because the crowds will be uh, elevated and the prices will be inflated. And so they said no. And so next year in its place, we're going to the seven churches of Revelation. So if you're interested, and by the way, I've never been to Ephesus, one of the places I want to go. And according to archaeologists and scholars, it is the crowning jewel of the ancient world. And so we're going to go Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. By the way, we're going to study the seven churches in January. And then if you're interested, we'll go. So I'll tell you more about that in the days ahead. But one of the things about fishing in the first century is that fishermen were hard workers, like I said. So after a long night, you got to imagine, these four men are coming in, working all night. And they thought it was going to be a routine day like every other day before, but it will be anything but routine. Why? Because on the seashore that day is a Galilean rabbi who is going to extend an invitation to these four brothers that is going to change their lives forever. Now, here's the encouraging part today. I want you to see this. We serve a risen Savior who still issues the same invitation for us to follow him today. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. We're going to study that invitation. As Jesus calls the disciples the same way he still calls us today. And uh, we're going to study Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. We like to say word when we get there. And so if you, if you have a Bible or a smartphone um, or an iPad or an Android, you can say word. Amen. The word of the Lord. As Jesus was walking... Okay, one thing uh, that we always want to do that I try to say for some reason my... <laughs> My, my thing wasn't working here to pause it. But anytime a pastor says, hey, we're going to go to this passage, we want to go there. Why? Well, most of the time, we, would, we just want to verify that kind of we're, you know, we're not skipping verses. We're not taking things out of context of where they are. And as we read through them, we can note them down that if there is a question, we can go back and ask later. That That's helpful, right? Now, one of the nice things that he does is that he's got the text on screen, probably for those that maybe don't have a Bible, can easily access it, or also just to show, you know, verse by verse that he's going along and doing this. Now, I know it sounds silly to be like, well, nobody's going to skip a verse. We've done a handful, maybe a little bit more of sermon reviews where people have skipped verses or just went from one passage to a totally different one and did not uh, acknowledge the fact that they were doing that and made the two passages sound like they were together. So I know it sounds kind of crazy that that's something you need to look for, but it's a hundred percent something you need to look for. And that helps when you're there in the passage that the pastor is saying, Hey, we're going to be here. So he directs his people, Matthew chapter four, verses 18 through 22. And he's going to read through the thing. Let's do it with him along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea. If you highlight or underline in your Bible, uh, go ahead and underline casting a net into the sea. We'll come back to that. For they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, underline this, preparing their nets. And he immediately called them. He called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray uh, as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you speak to your people in a way where they hear your voice and they hear your call? 
Soften our hearts. Open our ears. Give us eyes to see. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. I want to give you four characteristics of what a disciple looks like, a true disciple, a follower of Jesus. Number one is this. It's right from the text. A disciple follows Jesus. A disciple follows Jesus. Now, two insights about the call from Jesus to the disciples you'll notice. Number one is this. Notice what Jesus calls these men to, which was very uncharacteristic of the day. Jesus doesn't call them to follow the Torah. He doesn't call them to follow the scriptures. That's what rabbis did. Jesus is calling the men to what? Come follow who? Me. Now, in the process of following him, you'll learn these things, but Jesus' call is not to study the scriptures alone. The call is more to share one's life and ministry with Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, come follow me, boys, and we'll study systematic theology, right? That'd be fun, but that's not what he says. He doesn't say, follow me, and we'll study eschatology, whether it's premillennial or mid-millennial, or I mean, premillennial or post-millennial or amillennial or what I call panmillennial, it's all gonna pan out in the air, right? I mean, <laughs> that's a joke, but the reality is he doesn't do that. He doesn't say study theories of creation with me. He doesn't say learn ethical ways of living. No, here's what he says. Come follow who? Me, and here's what I want you to see. The Christian life is simply this. It's an intimate relationship with Jesus as you follow him and, fall and invest in others to do the same. Okay, so I don't think that me and Robbie would have a, uh, a t- totally different perspective on this. In fact, I think I know what he's saying. I just think the wording is a little weird. Um, he's taking this from a very recent development. I mean, I'm talking back, I mean, eight, 17th, 18th, 19th century, essentially, this idea during the Romantic era in which this very personal relationship-esque type of thinking came into play. Think uh, John Wesley sort of era, right? In which this personal relationship, Charles Finney is another great example, this personal relationship talk started coming in. That wasn't a thing up till sort of around the Romantic era. It just wasn't. That's not how... That's not how it was. Uh, Christianity was talked about. That's not how uh, individual Christianity was spoken of. It was very communal in nature, uh, very together, very uh, you know the ecclesia, the gathering of, of believers. Like so, I, I don't think that me and Robbie would probably have a huge difference. And I think I know what he's saying here in regards to the Christian life isn't all heady. It's also about doing. And I, he's going to unpack that here in a minute. But when I first heard this, I thought, ah, man, what is, oh, it's a little confusing what he's saying here. It's very modern, really, honestly, in, in what he's saying. And so he's going to flesh this out in a minute. I just think that this is one of the things, especially as pastors, when we're talking to our congregations, um, we need to be sort of careful about how we word and explain things. And again, this is, I understand this is nitpicky. In fact, the rest of what Robbie says up to the point that I was able to watch it, I think you guys are going to, I think this is going to be good. I think this is going to be very helpful teaching through. I think there's a lot of things that he's going to say here through the rest of the sermon review that are really beneficial. Um, This here, though, I think the way he's talking about, hey, the Christian life is this personal relationship of walking with Jesus, and it's not just about studying systematic theology, but about studying one's life. Um, Yes and no, (laughs) okay? Because he seems to, here and later, really understand about the rabbinic tradition as far as um, how rabbis taught their disciples. Like, Robbie gets that. He seems to, at least. He seems to be very knowledgeable of that. We'll, We'll let him unpack that here as we get on with this. 
But really this idea is understanding. It's the Great Commission. Go and teach them what I have taught you, right? Now that involves living life with people, but that also does involve this heady understanding of what do the scriptures mean? What do the scriptures say? How do we interpret and unpack that? And we've gone through a lot of different ages and errors in which uh, errors, not errors as in error, but eras as in stages in which that interpretation has sort of shifted and changed a bit. And we don't really, we don't put that into play or consideration a lot. Uh, you guys said you wanted more of this. So this is what I'm giving you as far as this breakdown. And so what we he have here is Robbie very much using a very recent interpretation of, oh, the Christian life is a personal walk with Jesus. And it's not about the systematic theology and the heady part of it. It's more about living life together. That's a fairly recent development in how to think about it. And so, or parts of that are. And that's all I wanted to stop and say there. He's going to unpack a whole lot more of this between evangelism and discipleship. And I think this is all going to be very interesting as we kind of look at what he says here. But that phraseology, I think, is important to be sort of just cognizant of the, the, the time we live in, what's happened up to this point that's made us use the verbiage that we use and the phrases that we, that we say. Um, because Christianity has very much in the past been a communal group of believers living together, yes, life on life, but also discipling and really getting into systematics and what does the word say and why does it say that and how does that then have us live life out, right? So a good orthodoxy live, uh, lends itself to living a good orthopraxy. Good knowledge of God helps us live as godly people. And so those are both sort of things. So all that to say, I don't think I disagree with him here. I just think the word each again, nitpicky, could be a little bit better. That's the Christian life. In fact, I would say this, if you're not following Jesus and investing in others or discipling to do the same, I don't know what you're talking about because it's not Christianity. That's Christianity, right? And so Jesus says, listen, the call is personal. It's intimate with me. What that means is when you follow Jesus, you're gonna walk like he walked, you're gonna talk like he talked, you're gonna love like he loved, and you're gonna live like he lived. That's what it means. And over time, you're gonna grow closer to Jesus and look more like Jesus today than you did years ago. My good friend, Bill Hall, who's a disciple-making author and pastor, here's what he said. He said, I am to live as though Jesus is living in me and through me. Here's what he said. If Jesus were a plumber, what kind of plumber would he be? If Jesus were an attorney, what kind of attorney would he be? If he were an accountant, a teacher, a business owner, what kind of person would he be? So the first aspect of Jesus's call is it's a call to him, not just the Torah. But here's a second insight, write this down. It's a call, you ready for this, that he issued. One of the interesting things about studying the Jewish culture is that you will be hard pressed to find one Jewish rabbi in all of history who ever went, who, whoever went after their own disciples. Normally the protocol was the aspiring student went and sought out a rabbi and they asked the rabbi, can I follow after you? Now this is interesting. But Jesus, in a sense, flips the script and Jesus says, no, I'm coming to follow I want you to follow after me. In fact, that's how we all follow Jesus, right? I mean, think about this. When Jesus called you like he called me, I wasn't looking for Jesus, amen? 
Do you remember that? You were not running hard after God and Jesus said, I think we'll let him in. No, you and I, before we were saved, were dead, the Bible says, in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Paul said. But thank God for his grace, but God, we were saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Is that how it worked for you, amen? So before you came to Christ, you and I were blinded to the world because we were not able to see the light of the gospel, the glory of God, who's the image of Christ. Aren't you grateful that Jesus Christ still comes after people today? And if you're here today, look at me, and you haven't, maybe you're at home worshiping, and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ fully, when is the best time to do that? Now, amen? And you'll, do, you'll get an opportunity in just a moment. So it will be interesting. Again, I didn't get to the end of this video. So it'd be interesting to see how he wraps in the gospel because he's already told him there's going to be an opportunity to accept this call of Christ. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he wraps that at the end, if, if, how he words the gospel, essentially. To be able to do that. Number two, a disciple follows Christ. Number two, a disciple is formed by Christ. Formed by Christ. The, the word here that's interesting, I want you to look at it, and it's in the ESV. I don't think the CSB captures it. It's in the ESV. Here's what it says. Follow me, and I will make you, underline this, become fishers of men. That's an interesting phrase there. Become fishers of men. Here's what it is. It is a future tense promise from Jesus of something that will happen when you follow him. Now, the word become is a fascinating Greek word. It's this word that means to form or to mold, or to make into something. It, it gives the idea of a birth, almost like a, like a rebirth, bringing something into existence that wasn't there before. Now watch this. Become is not an instantaneous gift that is given at salvation. Becoming sanctification is a long process over time. And I'll prove it to you. If the Christian life, don't miss this, if the Christian life was only about information transformation or transfer of information, Jesus would have told the disciples after he called them, all right, boys, line up, single file, Peter, come on first. Jesus would have placed his hands on Peter's head and supernaturally zapped him with all knowledge. Boom. I got it, boss. I know Calvinism and Arminianism. Finally, I figured it out, right? I mean, that's what would have happened, right? Eschatology and soteriology and justification. I got it all, Jesus, I understand it all. But that's not how it works, right? See, discipleship is a long, relational, intimate process of growing over time. I told you this before, but when I was in the, the fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, really the height of it, I was, was bullied a lot at a school I went to. In fact, one of the reasons my parents moved schools was because of that. I was real tall, skinny, lanky, uncoordinated, and uh, still some of those things, but, but back then really bad. So one thing I wanted to chop, the reason I was looking down is I want to make sure this was right. So this is where I think going back to the original uh, Greek is really important, the original language. There's a few tools I've already told you about uh, that you can use. Uh, the Interlinear Bible Hub app is a good one. The Step Bible app is good. The Literal Word Bible app is good as well, um, because all of those are going to put the Greek... Uh, along with, or the, or the Hebrew Aramaic, if you're in the Old Testament, but they put them along with 
the the wordage and the translation that you're using that on top of that. And so really the word here um, is to make or construct uh, or cause. So it's not that um, the ESV, like the ESV is taking some interpretational um, sort of leeway here to put become in there. And now it's only saying that because, um, because it says make so that there is this sort of idea of making or becoming or to cause is another way. Again, all of this Greek depends on like, it has a lot of different uh, words for one word. And it all depends on how the language of, or how the sentence structure is set up. So again, the ESV isn't necessarily wrong when it says become, but that's not necessarily one of the words from the Greek. Uh, they're sort of inferring it there, which isn't bad. Because what he is, he, it all comes out to the same, but it's just important to understand that there are tools for you to verify what is being said in the text if the translation is um, kind of which way, how much, you know, sort of leeway the in, in, translators are taking. Now, I'm glad that he touched on that for a specific reason, because a lot of people don't talk about sanctification in the Christian's life. And he uses that word to become or to make or to whatever translation you're using to sort of dig into that a bit that you are being made into. Um, and so, again, just those tools, I'll link all of those below, are really good to have alongside of uh, your Bible study time, or even when you're reading this, you know, the text along with the pastor as they're reading it, because those tools are going to help at least get you thinking a little bit more about the translation you're using. Is it being a little, is it being super literal? Is it taking a little bit of uh, leeway here? Uh, because sometimes much like what Robbie did here, but I think Robbie does it in a way that's, um, intellectually honest to the text. Um, he takes that word and he kind of goes off on a little tangent about sanctification, which again, I think you could tie it back easily to what the text says there, but there have been other pastors that we, that we've watched and listened that take a word and then run off with it. And that word itself, especially in like the translation, uh, like the, uh, the, uh, passion translation or the message that aren't there because they're not translations, they're paraphrases, then builds an entire sort of point off of a word that's not even there. And that's why those tools are helpful for you to have um, just to double check what's, what's happening. Uh, and I got bullied a lot. <clears throat> and uh, one of the movies that was really kind of a lifeline to me back in the 90s, and I mentioned this before, was the movie The Karate Kid. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? I mean, for the young folks, you don't know, but for me, this is a big deal because I worked really long at that, at that crane kick. I'm just telling you, that thing, that thing looks, it, it looks pretty cool. Like, I'm just telling you, and I even tried it in a fight, note to self, don't ever do that again. I mean, don't ever do, that is a sure way to get put in your back. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, I was desperate, okay? I mean, I was desperate. So, but one of the things about that movie you'll remember is that Mr. Miyagi, who was training Daniel's son, remember this? Every time Daniel, and this is a real image in the movie you don't wanna miss, every time Daniel would come in to visit him, he was in the shed doing what? In the garage doing what? Trimming the bonsai tree, you remember this? Now I've used this illustration before, but it's, but it's really hard not to go back to it. This is the greatest illustration for your relationship with the Lord and your discipleship process. Because if you notice the bonsai tree is cute, because it has all the properties of a larger tree you see out in the field. But because of the environment that the bonsai tree is raised in, it's not able to grow big. If you don't know, but you can actually take the bonsai tree out of that little pot, 
plant it in your backyard and it will actually grow higher. Why? Because the roots are able to go deep, therefore the branches are able to go up high. So the point is this, why why are you talking about this? Because the environment of the bonsai tree, the little container restricts the growth in a small pot and therefore makes it not conducive for growing and intending to be what God created the tree to be. Friends, come in real close. Many believers, listen to me, some in this room are like bonsai trees. God wants so much more for your life, but the environment that you're planted in, the friends that you're hanging with, the negativity you surround yourself with, the pages you visit, the scrolling you look through, all of that is a negative environment that is not conducive to spiritual exponential growth. Now, I don't know where you are and what environment you're in, but but you know that, right? And so I want you to take a look at the landscape of your life and I want you to ask yourself the question, am I in an environment for growth? Now you're probably saying, well, I can't grow myself as a Christian. You're right, you can't. You can't produce fruit as a Christian. God does that, you're right. But here's what you can do, don't miss this. You can align yourself in an environment where you are more likely to receive grace from God. You are more open to receive grace. You are, you're in a place where you can receive the grace of God. And one of the best ways that you can do that, you wanna know the best way? Is in a, in, in form, I mean, is in a, uh, a small, intimate, discipling relationship. That's why we talk about it at Long Hollow. We call them regular connection points. These are connection points in your life. Okay, so I just want to stop real quick. I mean, I've let him go for quite a quite a while here. Um, one of the things that I think, and he'll talk about this here in a minute, right? He'll he'll he's actually going to talk about exp. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's escaping my brain. Uh, expository preaching. He's going to talk about that here in a minute. So it's not that he doesn't like. He's not aware of it, what expository preaching is. From what he's going to tell us here in a little bit, um, he actually majored in it in seminary. So he's aware of what expository preaching is. What we've kind of gotten away from, though, is sort of that expository preaching. We're, um, we've, we've opened up in Matthew chapter 4. We've talked about Jesus calling the disciples. And we have given a, a good amount of um, sort of cultural background as far as context to what's going on. So we understand sort of the interaction that Jesus and the disciples um, are having, as well as what the disciples are doing and how hard their, their profession is at what they're doing. So we're not missing any of that. We understand what's going on. We've, we've sort of taken this, though, and went off on a pretty huge, long tangent uh, about sanctification and about um, becoming, you know, ha- how having a personal relationship is going to help your discipleship. We've done that, though, I would say, at the expense of the text. So we're not really um, rooted in the text so much as we are using the text as a jumping off place into talking about Christian sanctification and as well as talking about Christian discipleship. Now, both, as I think, I mean, we've sort of seen, and the reason he's, he even is where he is right now as far as on the topics is because they can, at, at the foundation of both, can be pulled from the text that we're in in Matthew chapter 4. I mean, we could easily say that Jesus uh, is going to make them into fishers of men, and in that process, those disciples are going to be sanctified. We could also demonstrate how they are being discipled by Jesus as he's calling them to follow him. 
Both of those things can be done in a variety of different ways. And I think this sort of shows, and this will demonstrate the closer you look at sort of if you're a pastor, your perspective on how you're doing this, or if you're a congregant, sort of how your pastor views you know, preaching, is that there's a few different ways to do this. We've already talked about the lenses and the, you know, the exegetical interpretational ways that we talk about things. This is another demonstration of that. If you go all the way back to the generation after the apostles, so we have the apostolic fathers, uh, people like uh, Clement of Alexandria, people like Origen uh, of Alexandria, both of them from the school of Alexandria. They basically pioneer, Origen more so than Clement, but uh, pioneer this idea of thinking about Scripture at a variety of different layers. So there's a literal layer, and then there's a spiritual layer, and there's a moral layer, and you can break down all of Scripture uh, on those layers and preach through them given each of those layers. So if you look up any old sermons, uh, we have some of Origen, for example. Um, there was one example that he has where he preaches through Genesis and uh, the, the seven days of creation. And instead of preaching like the literal seven days of creation, he preaches it as sort of this analogy of man and what that looks like for man uh, and unpacks it that way. It's very confusing. It, it doesn't, I don't think it actually, it's, it's so allegorical that it's, uh, for me, nauseating. But this is how Origen preaches it. Now, Robbie is doing a similar, yet obviously much more grounded version of this, in which he's taking this text in Matthew chapter 4 and saying, hey, there's principles here of discipleship and sanctification. And instead of walking us through uh, the, the New Testament uh, accounts of this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, of the lives of the disciples, showing how through various texts they were sanctified, uh, through various texts how they were discipled, instead of doing that, he's making it very applicable to us now by demonstrating how we are sanctified and how um, we are or should at least be in discipleship groups. And so he's doing a form of what we see all the way back Clement and Origen do, but in a much more sort of um, uh, applicable one-on-one -on -one type of way. And I think that is incredibly important to understand because in doing that, we understand, we, we're, we're able to, to sort of piece out what he's doing. Um, so let, let's go ahead and get back into it. My point being that, um, that he's not necessarily sticking verse by verse with the text. He's using the text um, as sort of a springboard into direct application. So what I would say is if you're a member of Long Hollow, visiting Long Hollow, call Long Hollow home, online. Every person needs to be in a regular connection point. What that means is this, you need to be in a life group or a D group or both, right? One of the cool things is we have a lot of opportunities that are coming up for you to be involved in. And it shows us that that's, that's the white hot laboratory for exponential growth in your life. So first of all, a disciple follows Christ. That's what we see. Number two, a disciple is formed by Christ, Christ works in us to work through us. Number three, a disciple is focused on other people. A disciple is focused. I want you to notice the call. Jesus says, come follow me and I'll what? I'll make you happy. Is that what he says? No. What does he say? Come follow me, I'll make you rich. Turn on TV, you'd see some guy saying that, but that's not what he said, right? Jesus doesn't say that, right? Come follow me, I'll make you happy. Come follow me, I'll make you joyful. Come follow me, I'll make you wealthy. Come follow me, I'll make you prosperous. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? At the beginning of the call, he says, come follow me and I'll make you what? 
fish for men or catch people. Now, what Jesus is showing us is the connection in the Bible between evangelism and discipleship. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Seems like semantics, but it's a big deal. If you're writing this down at the top of of, of your page or the top, right, disciple making. Disciple making is the process of making disciples, which is simple, making disciples, yeah, you get, okay. (laughs) For those who need the simplicity, all right. Disciple making and the two stool, the two, the two, uh, the two legs that hold up the mantle of disciple making are evangelism and discipleship, okay? Evangelism and discipleship. And you have to have both. And I know some of you are raised in churches, like a lot of people in here, where evangelism was the only oar in the boat, right? If evangelism okay, is the so only this, oar in the boat, well, what happens if you row with one oar? Sorry, this whole system is messing up today, as I'm sure you've already you've seen if you're watching the video version. So... Um, what he's going to do now is break down discipleship and evangelism, which again, I think is really good. I think what he's doing here is helpful in regards to demonstrating to, um, to his congregation and to us via the the sermon here, um, the importance of doing both of these things. My, my question is, it's not that is this content helpful or is what he's saying helpful in edifying the body? I think it really is. I, I do think it's helpful. My question then becomes, uh, is it actually from this text then? Is this what Jesus is actually talking about? Now, Robbie's making a case that this is what Jesus is trying to teach them. Um, But one of the questions I think we have to ask, just as pastors, let's just say as pastors preparing sermons, are there texts? So if you're going to do like a topical thing, right? If your idea is I want to talk on discipleship and evangelism, the question then becomes what text actually teaches on that, right? And not to, you know, force a round peg in a square hole here to make the text say something I say, but what is the, if I want to talk on discipleship and evangelism, what text should I go to that demonstrates the reality and truth of that? There's a lot of what Paul says, you could go to the Great Commission. There's a lot of different places. Now, I don't know if Robbie's working through Matthew, and that's why he's in Matthew chapter 4, and then this is sort of what he's pulling out of here. Or if you want to talk about sanctification, discipleship, evangelism, all of that, and he's sort of forcing it on here. I would argue, and this is just me, you take it or leave it. I don't think the content Robbie's talking about here is bad. I think it's really needed. Sanctification is not nearly as talked about as it should be, right? Discipleship, not as nearly talked about as it should be. Evangelism, not as nearly talked about as it should be. And very rarely, if you do hear any of the three, they're not combined as they are being combined here. I think all the things he's saying are really, really good. Uh, and the things that he's he's sort of unpacking and, uh, and telling his congregation are all very needed. The question then therefore becomes, is it actually what's happening here in Matthew chapter 4 in the verses that we're looking at? Because what we're looking at here is Jesus going and calling his first disciples and co- telling them to come follow him and he will make them fishers of men. Now again, we could unpack that a bit in Jesus' own words or as we look through the Gospels. Um, that's, that's my contention here. I, I want to make it really clear. I'm not saying that, uh, that Robbie's, you know, necessarily ripping this out of context. I think if you really pull hard and dig really far underneath, you can make this say this. I just think there's better texts that do say this. So that's, that's all there is to it. So let's get back into it. Let's have, uh, let's have him go, uh, and, and sort of walk through evangelism and discipleship. Or. You go in a circle, 
And we see that today. But here's the flip side. If discipleship is the only oar in the boat, we only wanna meet together, wanna memorize scripture, read the Bible, us four and no more, right? Then what happens? Then you go in a circle. So here's what you have to think. In order to have a biblical ministry, a Jesus ministry, you have to have two oars, the oar of evangelism and the oar of what? Discipleship. Think of it this way. The gospel is received through evangelism. It is lived out through discipleship in your life. Okay, that's how it works. Now, I want you to think about this. Discipleship without evangelism will end when the disciple maker dies. If you only have an evangelist, then evangelism will end when the evangelist dies. You have to have both. Does that make sense? Evangelism and discipleship. I remember when I was going to seminary, I was learning some of these concepts. I had decided to major, uh, this was my major. So my degrees are in this, this uh, track uh, of seminary. And I remember going to my dad who knew nothing about seminary, didn't know a lot about the Bible at the time. And I remember telling him, dad, I'm gonna get my major in what's called expository preaching. Okay, so he, here's my point. He knows what expository preaching is. He just, he chooses not to go down that route, which is fine. That's fine. As long as you're faithful to the text, that's fine. It's great. We've, we've had some, uh, some sermons reviews on this channel in which people are uh, more topical preachers, but they stick to the text that maybe they're not doing verse by verse. They're not um, doing that. They're not, you know, as we talked about expository preaching would be, Hey, let's look at how through the scriptures, Jesus disciples, um, th those guys. In fact, expository preaching would have went a whole lot more than just the few verses he went on. They would have went further probably, or unpacked it deeper. Um, but that just so we understand what's going on, he knows what it is. Um, and a lot of pastors know what expository preaching is. If you've been on this channel very long, I would say that is the absolute best way to do it. Um, he, he, and, and what, and again, I guess I should say this too. What Robbie is doing is a form of expository preaching. It's just that he's, um, kind of unpacking it a bit more. My dad responded and said, what, what's suppository preaching, son? <laughs> I was like, it's not suppository. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's not that. I, prom I promise you that. Okay. Expository preaching. Okay. Here's what expository preaching is. Basically, EX, pository, EX is out of. So the idea is uh, I'm trying to pull out of the text what the Bible says, what God says, and I'm trying to speak that to you and let the word do the work in a sense. Now, in order to be an expository, biblical, textual preacher, you have to have some presuppositions in your mind. You have to believe certain things. Number one, he, he's going to go through these things, and I just want to make a, a note really quick. I don't know anything about Robbie outside of this video. And I would say again, I think there's some things that I've obviously nitpicked up to this point that, you know, you can take, leave, do whatever you want with. Uh, what he's about to do though, as far as um, describe what expository preaching is and the presuppositions you have when you, you are an expository preacher. If this is all I have to go on with who Robbie is and what he believes, he seems like a fairly solid guy. I think we would probably have differences on a couple areas. It's like, whatever. They're not huge things. It's not terrible, uh, terribly huge differences. But I think what he's about to describe is really helpful and needed. Let me say that. A lot of times people will say in their sermon, I'm this type of preacher and not even unpack what that means. He's about to unpack what expository preaching is and the uh, apparently the presuppositions that he holds. So this is why I said that Robbie is... Um, 
I think he holds himself as an expository preacher, though I would say that, like, obviously there's different sort of paths of expository preaching. Like, you can still be an expository pastor and be on sort of this range or this gradient of how how um, how you do it. And so, though he's an expository preacher, he's not an expository preacher as, like, somebody... Um, like an R.C. Sproul would be, right? Um, he's, he's a little bit different than that. But that being said, the definition he's about to give, I think is really important to understand so that you can sort of gauge, is your pastor an expository preacher? If you are a pastor, are you an expository preacher? Is that a goal you're heading toward? All that to say, I'm going to let him unpack this because I think it's good. Is you have to believe that this book right here is the inerrant word of God. Amen? You have to believe that this book here is infallible, sufficient, and it's the breath of God. Meaning, this is all you need. You don't need other books like the Book of Mormon or the, the Watchtower for the Jehovah's Witness or the Quran for Islam. This is all we need, sufficient. Uh, we, 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 we believe it's not infallible. It's not gonna lead you to the wrong way by reading this book, and we believe it's inerrant. It doesn't contain errors. Parent contradictions from the surface, but when you study and drill down, you realize it all works together for one thing, okay? I also believe, so do you believe that? This is the word of God, amen? Every word here is inspired, not words on a page like a book. This is actually the breath of God. I also believe, get this, that the encounters are inspired, okay? So not only do I believe the words are inspired, I believe the encounters are inspired. What do you mean, Robbie? I believe that when Jesus came to Samaria on that day, at that time, the fact that a woman was at the well is not by chance. Do you believe that? Not by chance. When Jesus goes to the sea and sees these four fishermen fishing on that day, it's not by chance. Now watch this. I want you to feel the way of this. Isn't it interesting that the very two things these two sets of fishermen are doing at the moment when Jesus comes along, I believe is telling us what they will do in ministry for the rest of their lives, okay? Now here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna, we're gonna 21st century it based back then. So what we're gonna do is, I'm gonna take you back and we're gonna take our cameras and we're gonna make an Instagram post of what we see. Because you gotta remember, the Jewish people did not think in treatises and words and doctrinal statements, they thought in pictures and images. And if we read the Bible with a Western perspective, we miss this, okay? So here's what I wanna do. I wanna show you what these two guys are doing at the moment Jesus calls them. So let's go to the text. Notice the first thing the sets of brothers are doing, okay? It says, as Jesus was walking along the Sea of God, we got our phones out, we're gonna put an Instagram story up. He saw two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, and what were they doing? You ready for this? They're casting a net. So we're gonna take a picture, and what are they doing? They are casting a net. Now, here's an interesting question. What does the word casting mean? throwing the net, right? And I remember I told you earlier, they didn't fish during the day because the fish could see the net. They fished at night. And this net had a bunch of stones around the edges and the fishermen would throw the net out into the water, kind of a fan-shaped. It would sink to the bottom. They would dive into the water, grab the net and pull it up. Now, you'll notice right away it's called casting and not what? Catching. You notice they call it fishing not catching, right? Because success for a fisherman is not just in the catch, success for the fisherman is that he keeps casting. You see the point here? So the point is you cast the net. Now what does this have to do with Christianity? Casting the net for fish 
is synonymous with evangelizing the lost. Why? Because when you throw the net out of your... So I just want to make the point. So going back to what I was talking about before, in regards to sort of Clement or Origen, using the text and then saying there's an allegory here in this text as well. And this is what he's doing. He, he's saying the casting is like evangelism, and then he's going to then uh, paint a picture uh, here in a minute in regards to discipleship being mending the nets. Now, this isn't what we see from the text, and this isn't the immediate thing we're going to get from the text. The closest we're going to get from a literal reading is Jesus saying, I'm going to therefore make you fishers of men. You were fishers of fish. Now I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm changing your profession. You have a general idea of what that meant to be fishers of fish. I'm going to then have you do the same thing, fishers of men. So this is out of all the text um, that you could say, well, this is what Jesus is saying. He is painting a picture for them about what they are then going to do based on what they have already done. So this is this is probably the closest in regards to what you could say where he's telling them, oh, well, casting out is going to be like evangelism and mending the nets going to be discipleship. We don't get that straight out. We, uh, You could technically dig that out like Robbie's doing here and sort of laying it on top as sort of an allegory of what, oh, this is what Jesus is, this is what would be in the disciples' heads, which is what he already said he's trying to do. He's trying to say, hey, how would the disciples have heard this? This is how they would have heard it. And so... There, there's a little mix here between um, assuming what the disciples would have heard, but also applying, again, none of us are, are, are lens-free in how we're viewing the, the, the Gospels here. We've been passed down interpretation, interpretative methods, and one of the oldest interpretative methods comes from, like, Clement and Origen, where they're saying, well, there's probably allegory on top of this. So when Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men, the decide, the, what he meant was that they would cast their nets and they would mend their nets like this. And so it's not that it's wrong. I'm not, I'm, it's not what I'm trying to tell you. There is a way to go way too far with that. But we are applying that sort of interpretative method here as well. And I just want to draw that out to, to, to demonstrate that and show that to you. Your testimony. You throw the net out of your life and you share the gospel. You won't always catch people in a sense where people accept Christ, but that doesn't prohibit you from still casting, right? So casting is evangelism, sharing. Put a pin in that. Watch this. What is the second group of guys doing? We're going to go back with our Instagram picture. I'm going to take a picture, okay? Or Facebook for the older crowd. I'm older too, so I get it. I'm like right on the verge. Okay, so they go, second group, James and John. What is James and John doing? Of all things, listen, they're not sweeping the boat. They're not counting the fish. They're not putting up the boat. They're not lowing the, I mean, you gotta think of all the things we get the picture of, we get the picture of this. And it's in both accounts, Mark and Matthew, the exact same thing. We walk up, what is John and James doing? Mending the nets or preparing the nets or repairing the nets. One of the things about fishing is this. In order to be an effective fisherman, you have to, when you come in, fix the nets. Why? Because if the fish bite the net long enough, you won't catch any fish. So you gotta see this inextricable connection between casting and repairing. You're gonna love this. That word repairing, mending or preparing, is actually the word equipping. Equipping. Same root word, synonymous 
with the word equipping. Now, I'll show you two places in the Bible this root word is found. The first one is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed, you know this verse, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God will be competent, ready, equipped, there's a word, equipped for every good work. So what is he saying? That the word of God equips the people of God. But here's the verse, you're gonna love this. The connection synonymous verse is Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. And this is the discipleship verse. We preach this all the time. You know this verse. And God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to what? Repair, mend, fix, prepare, equip the saints for the work of ministry. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Isn't it interesting? that the very two things sovereignly, these two sets of brothers are doing, the moment Jesus calls them, they think they are naturally casting the net and preparing the net for fish. And Jesus says, no, it's bigger than that. One day you're gonna be evangelizing the lost and discipling the saints for ministry. The very two things they're doing is a picture of what they're going to do for the rest of their life. Here's what Jesus is saying to you. If someone told you that the Christian life was to come to church, sit and soak up a message, they sold you a bill of goods that wasn't true. This is not the Christian life. This is a part of it, but it's so much more than that. The Christian life is this wonderful adventure where you get to partner in a co-mission, not a mission, but a co-mission with the God of the universe and you get to walk with him intimately and personally to change the world for Christ. Okay, so on that again, I think it's just really important to note um, sort of what, how language works and how interpretation works. So what we have here is verses 18 through 22. Just going to read them real quick one more time. ESV says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and uh, John, brother, um, sorry, the sons of Zebedee, and his and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat, and their father followed them. Now, while the mending the net verse that we see here in uh, verse going to be 21 is going to be the, a similar word that he's trying to use somewhere else, that doesn't necessarily correlate between... Um, the connection he's trying to make, right? Language is really like an important thing to understand that though, while the root word may be the same as we've talked about previously, how it's in a sentence and how it's being used in that sentence because of how Greek works, um, the same root word is there. The same meaning may even be there, but the way it's applied in the sentence is in a particular way for a particular purpose. So not that he's necessarily wrong in regards to the purpose of discipleship and evangelism and how that all works out, but to make a stretch there on a Greek word. And again, this is where I'm a little confused, right? Because Robbie seems really educated. Uh, he seems to know what he's talking about. And so I just want to make sure we're really cautious as pastors not to make a leap that the original text isn't trying to make. 
Just because a word is used in a particular way over here in a sentence does not automatically mean that there's some sort of mysterious underlying connection here being made in another letter to another group of people because the same word is used. Yeah, the same root word is there. And this is where it's really important to, yeah, we need to unpack the Greek. We need to understand what the word means. We need to understand what it's sort of alluding to. But we also need to understand that language works in a particular way. And in Greek, it works in a very particular way as far as the way this sentence is structured and what it's what that word is trying to be used to get across in that particular sentence. So I'm just saying that to say this. Just because the same root word is there does not necessarily mean that um, it doesn't allude to the connection that Robbie is trying to make to here necessarily. And we need to be educated on that, I suppose, because what I've noticed, even in myself and definitely in all of us Americans, American evangelicals, is that we haven't really been taught that well about how language has previously worked. And so we oversimplify what and how it's used. And then we make huge stretches, right? This is where the whole conflict with the 1946 movie where homosexuality wasn't in the Bible till 1946. Like you're making oversimplifications on word usages um, when that's not how language is typically used. And when we simplify translations and interpretations that way, we're missing the underlying point of what is trying to be said. Um, hopefully that you, you still get the point. It's not that he's necessarily wrong in the root word and how it's used in various places, but that doesn't necessarily mean these two things are connected between what Paul writes Timothy and what, what uh, Luke is, or Matthew rather, is describing here happening in the narrative that he's telling. And that's where, again, and we're not going to get into this because this video is already, uh, uh, it's going to be really long. Um, but this is where we have to also understand types of letters. Is it narrative? Is it instructional? Is it poetry? Is it apocalyptic? All of these things are incre incredibly important to understand when we're unpacking and preaching through them. Here's what we like to say. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. And if that's the case, every person in here is either running with passion with the baton that was handed to them or you're fumbling the handoff. The final aspect, which is an easy one to overlook, and this is a, a huge one, is a disciple forsakes everything. It's just one word here, but you notice it. When Jesus calls the disciples, what does the text say? Give me a week or two to think about it. I'll be right back. So he said, hold on, let me go talk to some friends and uh, let me go pray about it. What, no, what does it say? Immediately, without hesitation, they followed Jesus. And I wanna show, show you this because it's hard for us in our American culture to really grasp the enormity of these three English words, come follow me. So I wanna take you on a journey 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> I wanna place you, excuse me on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. And I wanna tune your ear to hear what those guys would have heard when they heard these three words, come follow me. I have to take you all the way back to the educational system. It started at the age of five or six, where- Now I'm gonna let him talk for quite a bit more. We are 28 minutes into a 45 minute sermon. So just to kind of give you an estimation of where we're at and how much longer we have. I am gonna let him go through this though, because I think this part is really helpful. 
See, so again, I don't want you to get this impression. I don't think Robbie's doing a good job. I, I, I think this is sort of a really difficult sermon to review because there's some really good parts here mixed in with what I think are some sort of leaps to make a point. What he's about to do, however, like all that aside, is to walk us through the educational system of the, the first century Judaism, actually even before that, but give us an idea of where we're at within the Gospels. And I think this here is really helpful because it is going to give you a ton of context and a, co- a ton of understanding about sort of where the disciples had been in their childhood up to this point, how they would have understand education to work, what it would have meant for their outcome on life, like their outlook in general as far as education, as far as, uh, as job prospects, all of that. Like what he's about to do is going to be really helpful to us because it's going to, again, open up all that context and all that culture to something we are so outside of we don't even understand. And as he does this, and this is why context and culture is so important, Hopefully, you get a window into a lot of the background here as far as rabbis and calling people and what, again, just what he said, come follow me, unpacking what they would have heard. So this here, I think, is really good, really good information. Young boys and girls, boys and girls went to school at this time. Both of them enrolled in the same level of schooling, which was the Beit Sephor. Beit is the Hebrew word for house, B-E-T. Sephor or Sefer, whatever way you want to say, Sephor is the word for house. Uh, I mean, house of the book, sorry, book. Book is Sefer, so house of the book. They all started to study the Torah. That's what you learned. You didn't learn calculus or geometry or math or astronomy. You don't learn any of that. Why? Because the only thing they believed for life and living and intimacy with the Father and relationships with others was found in this book. That's all they learned was the Torah. The Torah, for those who don't know, are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. By the age of 10, there was a big break in the learning. Most of the students who could not make the cut and all of the women went to work into the family business. If the dad made sandals, what did they learn how to make? They made sandals. If the father had a farm, uh, the family had a farm, they worked in the vineyard. If If the father owned a fishing enterprise, Zebedee Seafood and Company. Where do they go work? They work for their father. That's naturally what they did. But those who rose to the top, the best of the best, they actually showed a passion for the word of God. They showed a love for the word of God because they, you ready for this? Memorized the Torah. Some of the students, which is hard to wrap our mind around, some of the students, I would say many of the students, finished the first level of study by memorizing the entire Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You're saying there's no way. Listen, young people, imagine if you would have devoted five years of your life not to Fortnite and texting and television, and you devoted it day in and day out to learning God's word for eternity. And I'm putting myself in that category. Imagine uh, older adults, if we don't spend all our time scrolling and we spend all our time memorizing, we could get there too. They love the word of God, why? Because this is not just words on a page. You gotta understand, when the Bible, and they didn't have Bibles they could take home. When the Torah would come out, and when we go to Capernaum, we reenact this. When the Torah comes out and the people are there, the people are standing, not during worship, but during the reading of the word. And by the way, they read the word for 45 minutes and everybody stood. And they weren't just standing there, you know, waiting for this song to be over so I could sit. 
That's how some of you guys look, by the way. I watch you. I watch you. Think you're looking cool. You know, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. That when the word of God, you gotta put yourself there. When the words came out and they opened the scroll, the people started clapping. The, the people started dancing. There was not uncommon for women to be weeping. Why? This is not words on the page. This is the word of God. God has it. Now, the, as far as the schooling part, I can confirm all of that. I don't know where he's getting the dancing and the clapping. and the. Now, there are times of that. But as far as in synagogue, um, we have some accounts of the Old Testament, right? Um, it is skipping my brain when they had lost the, the law of God and they come back and they bring it before everyone and there's this mass repentance because, hey, we found the law of God and we're not doing the things we're supposed to do. Um, that's a situation where that happened. I don't know of any other. I could be wrong, right? I could be wrong. I, I can verify what he's saying about the schooling part. I can't uh, off the top of my head verify the whole clapping and crying and weeping part as a regular occurrence. If you know of one, let me know in the description. Let us alone. He's spoken to us. And we have, God wrote a book. We should read it. And so they praised God and they wanted to learn the word of God. So they committed it to memory. At the age of 10, they would go into the second level of study called the Beit Talmud. Um, I'm sorry, um, the, the Beit, yeah, the Beit Talmud, which was the house of learning. And during this stage of study, they would learn the rest of the books of the Old Testament, 39 total. They would learn interpretation about the Old Testament. They would learn Hebrew words. And at the end of this level of study, by the age of 15, this is where a really big shift happened. 95, 98% went to learn the family business. But the top of the top, the best of the best, the best of the class, they would go into which would be similar to a PhD program today in theology. And like I said earlier, they didn't get propositioned from a rabbi to study with them. No, at the age of 15, they entered what was called the Beit Midrash, or the house of study. And that just sounds overwhelming, right? So what they would do is they would go to a well-known rabbi in the community and they would ask the rabbi this question, can I learn under you? Can I study under you? And the rabbi would ask himself this question about the promising student. Does he have what it takes? Is he good enough? Does he have chutzpah, as they say? Does he have passion for the word of God? Does he love God's word? And if he thought this man had potential, he would put him through the equivalent of an oral examination for a PhD entrance. He would ask him questions about interpretation. He would ask him questions about the Torah. He would ask him questions about the prophets. He would ask him questions about the law. And if he thought he was good, if he thought he was the best of the best, he would tell him the three greatest words any Jewish ear could have ever heard. And here's the three words he would say to this 15-year-old boy, come, follow me. It was the greatest honor to be called to follow a rabbi. He would study from the age of 15 to the age of 30 when most rabbis began their ministry. So let's go back to the, to the account we read earlier. At the age of 30, when most rabbis are beginning their ministry, we are introduced to a Galilean rabbi named Jesus, who is 30 years old. And he's walking by the seashore that day, he's beginning his public ministry, and he is going to extend an invitation to these four disciples, who if they wanted to know their future, they just had to look to their father. If they wanted to know what tomorrow was like, they just have to look to yesterday. And Jesus is gonna extend this call to these men who are fishing. Now the question is, why are they fishing? 
All right, so here we have the music. <laughs> oh, man, it's, it's so predictable at this point. So it's always 10 minutes as it's always 10 minutes before we end almost almost always the music. So um, before we start, because my guess is he's going to try to transition into um, Jesus invitation to you. So hopefully we, this is where we get some sort of the gospel presentation, because I stopped right after he said about Jesus entering ministry at 30. So I don't know what happens after this. Actually, I stopped. I didn't hear the music when I stopped it. So I stopped a little bit before that point being my guess is or my assumption or my hope is that he's going to unpack the gospel here at the end, explaining that Jesus has the same call. Hey, come follow me, you know, give your life to me, be my disciple. Hopefully that's how, you know, and then he unpacks some sort of the gospel presentations as far as uh, we're in sinner in need of salvation. You know, Jesus is that, uh, that, that salvation that we need, something along those lines. The point is, up to this point, in what he just unpacked, historically accurate, as far as uh, as far as my recollection comes, obviously you might want to go and dig into that a bit deeper. But as far as recollection holds, basically accurate, uh, except the one part I mentioned about the crying and the clapping and stuff. I don't I don't know if that happened every time, but the point is that there is this real devotion to scripture. It does mean a lot to follow a rabbi. That was no small feat, right? That was that that took a lot of memorization, dedication, and knowledge and know how and desire, right? Uh, it's not just like now where you can be like, hey, I want to be a pastor, da, 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 online degree, got it. Um, like it was very much a dedicated, purposeful, diligent task you had to really assert yourself to. And so all of that's great. And he says, so Jesus says, come follow me to these fishermen. And they do. But for them, it, it's a whole lot deeper and it means a whole lot more. And so I think what Robbie did here was very helpful in unpacking how they would have heard it and what it meant to them. I, I have some more comments. We'll save this to the end. Let's see how he sort of ends this, hopefully, with some sort of gospel presentation. Because they weren't good enough. They weren't special. They didn't have what it took by the world's standard. The religious leaders said, no, you're not going to make it. So they looked over them and they overlooked them. I don't know what it's like to be those guys, but I know as I go back, I was talking about bullying earlier. I go back to when I was a kid, and this used to, this used to really get me. It doesn't get me as much now, but I could get emotional if I think long about it. But, you know, being tall and lanky and, and uncoordinated, one of the things I never got picked for was playing team sports, specifically at lunch. And when I was in the fifth and sixth grade, you remember this? We weren't supposed to play tackle football. We called it touch football, but it was tackle, right? Once we got loose. But, but we wanted to play, and I wasn't very good, but I wanted to play because I wanted to fit in. And what we would do is, you remember, they would, they would get two guys lined up to pick the teams, and the rest of us would line up on the fence. Remember this? And the two guys picking the teams, you remember this guy? The first guy had failed twice. You know him, the bully. At least that's what Moscow, yeah. he was the bully. And then his partner in crime, nobody was gonna kind of buck the system. And we would stand in line and they would always do the same thing every time they would say, Joey wants you, okay. You know, Mike, and we'd always just try to stand, you remember, you start standing as tall as you can, you know. And it would, it would always happen over and over. They'd get to the end, it'd be me and two or three guys total. And they would look around and they'd say, no, we got the team, sorry, maybe, maybe tomorrow we'll pick you we would walk off defeated. And again, it was a long time ago, but I just put my, and some of you are there, you, you've been there before. I just look back, I go home and cry to my dad. And it wasn't so much I wanted to play football, honestly. It, it was, I just wanted to be accepted, right? 
I just wanted somebody to pick me. I just wanted somebody to, to acknowledge me. I just wanted somebody to approve me. And, and I would go home. Now, I don't know if the, the boys in the, the story are there, but I imagine they had been overlooked and looked over their whole life. They were in the fishing business because that's what they were gonna do the rest of their life. And Jesus Christ that day walks by the Sea of Galilee. So here's my issue here. We're not appealing to the, and now again, we, we still got 10 minutes. So, I mean, well, less than 10 minutes, like eight, but we can still unpack the gospel here. But what it seems like we're doing is appealing to emotionalism in regards to, hey, you know what it feels like to not be picked. You know what it looks like to be overlooked. Like, you know what it means to be the last guy in the line and everybody else has gotten the position and you haven't, you go home. Like, you know that feeling. Jesus won't leave you in the line. Jesus picks everyone, right? That's the kind of sort of the emotionalism that we're sort of leaning into. Now, I'm going to hold out hope here <laughs> that we somehow bring the gospel in. Let's see. And he says these three words in that Galilean accent, which changes the course of human history because of their obedience. Here's what he says. Peter, James, John, Andrew, come follow me. You know what they heard that day? Here's what they heard. I believe in you. You're not, you're not looked over in my book. You're not second class in my book. In fact, if you follow me, I'm gonna change the world through you. And even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it, God. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus always calls the less than perfect. Can I get an amen? He always calls the not good enough. He always calls the ordinary people and he does extraordinary things. Why? Because that's how he gets the credit. And listen, their life-changing experience. So he could like, oh. we were we were doing decent decently well up to this point i mean you could go to the passage where you know uh he he, he uh, what is it ephesians ephesians 2 right let's go there really quick we got time this is already a long video what, what, what's 10 more minutes going to mean to you right um ephesians it's ephesians 2 so no where's the no one can boast verse i think that's ephesians 2 <laughs> oh well i can't find it right away let me i'm sorry i'm just looking this up real quick yeah it's ephesians 2 9 how did i skip over that i went too far down um so and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world following the prince and the power of the air this is the verse he quoted earlier or part of the verse he quoted earlier and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the bodies and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind but god rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the coming ages here's the verse I'm talking about he could have just quoted this at the end so that in the coming ages he might show immeasurable riches in his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing so it doesn't matter how it's not just that Jesus picks the least and the unwanted and the not impressive ones it's that you're we're all not impressive all of us so no matter if you have huge muscles or are super lanky no matter if you're super talented or you have no talents at all jesus saves us by grace 
through faith that this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God, not the results of work so that no one can boast. It's God's doing. So yeah, God picks all sorts of people. Does he choose a lot of people in which he can he can say, hey, obviously that was me? Yeah, he does that sometimes, but he also works through kings. And he also works through like really impressive people like Abraham that have huge amounts of, uh, of, of flocks and herdsmen. Like he works through all kinds of people. It's not that Jesus picks, picks the least and the unwanted. He definitely works through people like that, like you and me. He also works through kings and, and, and powerful, rich individuals. Why? Because that way nobody can boast. So I can't boast my riches. I can't boast of my non-talent. I can't boast in anything. It's Jesus that does it. So it's odd like that we're appealing to this emotionalism at the end instead of just reading the rest of Ephesians that he started quoting earlier. Started with the obedience to respond. That's all it was. These guys just responded. When Jesus called and said, hey, I'm calling you. They're like, I'm in. I don't know what that means. I'm scared. I'm overwhelmed. I can't speak. Moses, I'm not a good leader, David, but, but I'm in. And I wonder today as we close, what is God calling you to do? Now for some of you, the call is to respond completely to salvation and to give your life once and for all to Christ and stop playing games, all in. Draw a spiritual line in the sand and say, Jesus, I'm all in. For some of you, it's to follow through with baptism. And it's to say, hey, I, I don't know. I feel like I've been on the fence and I know I'm scared maybe I was sprinkled as a child or christened. Or maybe I was baptized on the wrong side, but I haven't done that. I've been disobedient to that. If the Holy Spirit is leading you, I'm just asking you to be obedient today. Remember, delayed obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. When Jesus spoke, the disciples immediately followed him. Maybe it's your marriage is not what you thought it would be or maybe what it wasn't in the past. And maybe God's calling you to ask forgiveness. Maybe you have an addiction that you're battling right now and you need sobriety and you need freedom from that and you need repentance. And so maybe that's what God is calling you to. Maybe you're engaged in sexual immorality with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a situation and God's calling you to confess that. To, I, don't, I don't know what God's calling you to do. Maybe he's calling you to ministry. You've resisted that. Maybe to the mission field, you resisted that. And today he's calling you. I just want us to spend a moment. Would you just bow your head for a moment? I, I want us to hear from God today, not from me. I've said enough. I want you to just get alone with the Lord for a moment in, in silence and solitude and just close your eyes. Put your stuff aside. I'm just going to ask you quickly. I, I, I didn't do this in the last service. I just feel like I should do this now. But if you're here today and you're saying, Pastor, what you said really spoke to my heart, and I have put off surrendering to Christ, whether at salvation or, or whether it's through baptism. I've been disobedient to that, but I feel like the Holy Spirit tapping me and he's calling me. Would you just stand right where you are? And I just want to pray over you right now. We don't have a ton of time for this, but I feel like there are some in here who would say, that's me. Thank you, sister. I, I just feel like there's some people, I wasn't gonna do this today. I just feel like, but I feel like God's leading us to do that. There are some men and women here today, boys and girls who are saying, pastor, that's me. Thank you, sister. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? Just, just stand right where you are. Hey, that's me. You're speaking to me. I hear the voice of God. 
calling. I don't want to resist the voice of God. I don't want to harden. Thank you, brother. I'm not hardening my heart to God. I put off baptism long enough. I've stiff-armed God long enough. I've lived in disobedience long enough. I'm not gonna go another day where God can't trust me with the little things in order to entrust me with much later. Just a moment longer. Would you just stand right where you are and in your stand? Uh, we have four minutes left, so there's actually quite a bit more time here. Let's, let's let them keep going. Um, maybe we'll get to the gospel and presentation as far as Jesus, you know, you're a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus is the savior. He died and rose again for you. All of that. We haven't really talked about that. Now I know that seems like a small thing for some people because he's asking people to, uh, fully surrender to God, uh, to, to repent of, of their disobedience, which we're, this is all good. Uh, I'm interested to see how he'll wrap that up, though. You're just saying, Pastor, pray for me. Pray for me. And I don't know who you are, but sense the tap of God on your shoulder. Don't let pride get in the way. Thank you, brother. Praise God. I know that takes a lot to do that, a lot of courage to stand. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? I'm not going to run any longer. I'm going to trust and obey. I'm going to trust and obey. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? Just a moment longer. If your hands are sweating and your heart is beating, that's probably the Holy Spirit tapping, saying, hey, I'm speaking. And what a wonderful thing to hear. Aren't you grateful, church, to hear the voice of God? It's a wonderful thing. To, to, to not have the lampstand removed and live in darkness. There's some who are living in darkness, but to hear the voice of God. If you're standing, would you look at me for a moment, just those standing? I'm gonna ask you to come here. I'm gonna pray over you personally. And I'm gonna ask the power of God on your life. Brother, would you just come down? You can bring your stuff. And, and sisters, would you praise God? Others are coming. Uh, brother, would you just come? Just gonna pray over you guys for a moment. Not gonna make it long. And then I'm just gonna direct you to our next steps area. And I'm uh, just gonna celebrate what God's doing in your life. I just feel like we weren't planning this. I know we're going over time, but I feel like this is important. Obviously, it's, it's a very important thing in your life. I'm not asking you to do anything I, I didn't do when I was in a position like you guys. But God will honor faithfulness. He, he, he will honor um, trust and obedience. And so if you're coming from the balcony, you come. Praise God. Praise God. You come. If you need to come, praise God. give you something that will help you as a resource to grow. I wrote a book years ago called Firmly Planted. Basically, it's a book I wrote to myself as a new Christian, just about how to grow as a Christian. So praise God for you coming. We're going to help you with a resource, but it's more than that. We're going to come alongside and try to walk with you. And so praise God. I know others are still coming. People coming from the balcony. Praise God. You come if you're in the balcony and you need to come, or if you didn't come and you just feel led by the Lord, as I pray. Hey, I'm going to pray over us now. We're going to thank the Lord for what he's doing in your life. And uh, we're just going to trust that this is the beginning of the rest of your life. And this is a spiritual marker for you. Father, we thank you so much. I thank you for those who have responded and those who maybe will respond in the next moment as we sing and praise you. I pray right now, God, that you would set these brothers and sisters free once and for all from anything that would be a hindrance to intimacy with you. 
God, we pray that today is the spiritual marker they'll look back on. And God, I thank you for their courage to step up and say, I need to surrender to Christ and I need to follow through unashamed in baptism. God, we know baptism doesn't say, but it's an outward sign of an inward desire of following you. We love you, Jesus. We ask it today in the only name we know how, and that's the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said. Okay, so he ends it there. I don't know. <clears throat> it's, this is where it's going to be really hard to tell. Maybe he walked those people through uh, the gospel when they came down. Perhaps that's what happened. But let, let's go back through. Let's go back through, ask the three questions, and then sort of unpack a few of the other things. Firstly, did he read the scripture? He did. He read Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 22. So he read through that. Did he unpack the culture and context of the situation and give uh, application for the modern believer? He did. Yeah. I think there was a there was a lot of context during certain parts of this sermon, uh, sort of scattered throughout, that were really helpful in unpacking some of that. And some of that um, was application sort of, again, I think sort of stretched out of it, but it, it, it could have fit. So yeah, there's definitely reading the scripture Definitely unpacking this, the context and culture and then giving some application for what that would practically mean. I think it was a little, we gave some application before we gave some uh, deeper context and culture, but it was all there. It was just a little, the order of it. Um, did he preach the gospel? This is the part that I'm a little, uh, a little iffy on. Now, again, I have done my own, I've reviewed my own sermon in which I did not feel like I presented the gospel clearly enough. Um, and I think that um, this is sort of the uh, the fill I'm getting here. I, he, he talked about repenting. He did talk about, uh, you know, going all in with Jesus. We didn't really mention a lot about sin. I mean, repentance sort of is connected to that. But if you're new, maybe you, are you connecting those things? Um, so I'll say this. It was not a clear, not even close to clear presentation of the gospel. But maybe, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, he walked those people through that as he prayed with them, hopefully. And if he didn't, hopefully they connected them into the, the new connections or whatever he said that he was going to send them to. The point being, the sermon was already 45 minutes. He could have spent that time in, in unpacking the gospel a bit better or cutting out some of the, the more sort of filler things and then sort of rearrange it. Now, I'm not not Robbie Gala, Galatay. I'm not Robbie. So I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's in his brain. That all that to say this, I think it was a fairly decent sermon. There's obviously issues I have with it. Um, the gospel presentation being the main one. I think there were some other things that again, ex he knows what expository preaching is. He majored in it in seminary. So he's obviously very knowledgeable of what that would be. And I would say that, um, that was a very loosely done expository sermon. Like it could still count, but it was very on the verge of expository in regards to sort of the things he was adding in there. I don't think it was all bad. And I think altogether he would be worth something, somebody to check out just based on the things that he said, as far as how he sees the scripture. Uh, he seems very knowledgeable about the scriptures. He seems very uh, knowledgeable about uh, Greek, even though obviously I have some issues with some of the ways he connected some things from Timothy and Matthew, but uh, I explained those. So altogether, not bad. It was very confusing. <laughs> I think maybe that's what you're getting from this. It was a very confusing sermon review because there were some very good parts there mixed in with some very concerning ones. And so I would be cautious. If I listened to another sermon, there would be definitely some things I would be looking for uh, a lot more detail on as far as the gospel being presented well. Um, as far as um, 
not just some things that are a little bit being a little bit more zoomed into on a very purposeful way. So hopefully that was helpful to you. Maybe I just, maybe you're, you're leaving as confused as I seem to be about this sermon uh, and the good parts and the bad parts, but let me know what you think below. I'd love to hear from you. If you thought it was helpful, if you thought it, if you thought it was helpful, leave a like, leave a comment. And if you think somebody could benefit from it, share it with them. Thank you guys. If you're not subscribed yet, go ahead and do that. And I'll talk to you next time.